Pastor Paul Boyer and the Congregation of Victory Church welcome you to this lesson from the Word of God. It is our heartfelt desire to see you grow closer to the Lord and to help you become all that He has created you to be. Our prayer is that through this ministry you would come to know Him in a greater way and that these teachings from the Scriptures will equip and motivate you to fulfill His plan in your life. Now, let's join Pastor Paul as we study the Word together. So, Pastor John and I were talking, he, he'd asked me a couple of weeks ago if I'd preach today, and I knew it's his anniversary uh, on Coast Guard Day, and Tyler's anniversary is on my birthday, but that's another story. I, I got to, yeah, so I got to get a sister to do something on my birthday or something, I don't know, so we can be, have this all tied together. But, so he asked me if, if I would preach, and I said, sure, I'd be glad to, and he said, well, we want to carry on with the What Does the Bible Say series. And I said, Wonderful. I said, what does the Bible say about redemption? What does the Bible say about, you know, life after death? What does the Bible say about concealed carry? It wasn't the top of my list. But the more I got into it, the more excited I got about it. So I'm hoping I can bring a pretty good sermon this morning. I hope you get something from it, even if you're not interested in concealed carry. But the reason that we're doing this is because somebody asked. Pastor John asked for input. You know, he said, please email me your topics. Somebody asked about this. So I think, we should, uh, I think we should address it. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. And Brad, I signed into my social media this morning. So there's nothing wrong with Facebook and all that stuff, but I'm hoping you're signing on to here first. Okay? All right. So we're going to get started, but before we do, let's pray. Let me thank you for the opportunities you've given us to be here this morning in your house to worship you. Lord, you give us this opportunity often. And often we should partake of it. Lord, you call us here. I believe you don't, that a person doesn't come to a church by accident, doesn't come to a church for convenience. I believe that Christians are called to the place of worship. So I thank you, Lord, for calling these people here today, leading them into this house. Lord, I ask that you be with us today, that your spirit move amongst us, that you give me the words to speak, that something that I say today will resonate with all that hear it, and they take it with them when they leave this place. So be with us this morning, Lord, and give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what does the Bible say about concealed carry? Nothing. Thank you for coming. It's been great. <laughs> the Bible doesn't specifically address concealed carry any more than it addresses Internet porn or any of these other issues that we have to, to deal with in our modern age, right? Remember that the Bible was not written to us. Right? It was written for us. That means that it's there. It is the lighthouse that draws us safely to the shore. We can navigate by the word of God. And it will lead us to the, in the right way. In the right way of thinking. But it doesn't specifically address every conceivable issue. What it does do is give us principles to make decisions on. It gives us an opportunity to understand the mind and heart of God and how God would look at whatever situation that you're dealing with. So, the Bible doesn't say anything about concealed carry. But concealed carry really is not the question, is it? The question is not, is it okay for me to carry a deadly weapon? The question is, is it okay for a Christian to use it? 
It's the taking of life that's at stake here. It's not whether I, it's okay for me to have a pistol on me, but I can't go on, on the Metrolink with it, and I can't go to a ball game with it, and I can't go to a school. Yeah, you need to understand what the law requires if you're going to do that. That's important. But that's not the question. The question is, what does God think about the, you having the ability to take another person's life? And under what situations is that acceptable in the eyes of God? That's what we're really talking about. We're not going to find a thou shalt not passage anywhere in Scripture that addresses this. Now, the problem that some people have is they read into the Bible, and if they, they come to the conclusion that if it doesn't specifically preclude something, if the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not do this, then it's okay. That if, if the Bible didn't tell me not to, so therefore whatever it is that I want to do is perfectly okay because the Bible doesn't address it. Well, I have to say that's wrong. The Bible does address it, but maybe not specifically. So when questions arise like this one, should a Christian have the capability of, of taking another person's life? When these kind of questions arise, we're faced with a moral decision. Whether to get involved in this activity or not. And in this case, to arm ourselves. So what do we do? Is the scripture no help at all here? Of course it is. It's the very word of God. In 2 Timothy, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we have a question... If something is morally or ethically correct, what, what's the first place we go to? We go to Scripture. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the Scripture as he promises to do and lead us to the principles that we can make our decisions and base our lives on. Does that make sense? The Bible is always there, and it's always true, and it's always right. So when a question is about principles... We search for the principles in God's word and trust them to reveal the principle of the matter. Now, what that takes is study. What that takes is exegetical study. Now, exegetical is a fancy theological word that I like to throw on because it makes me sound smart. What it really means is reading out of. That you're taking the scripture as the scripture is and you're reading into it and extracting from the scripture what it says. Notice I said what it says. Not what you want it to say. Not what society wants it to say. But we take the scripture as it is. Just as in law enforcement, we should take the facts and the evidence as they are. You go where the evidence leads you. In an exegetical study, you go where the scripture leads you. The problem with that is that too many people come to the study of the Scripture with preconceived ideas of what they want Scripture to say. They've got a firmly held belief that they're going to take the Scripture and they're expecting Scripture to back them up. You have to guard yourself from that. That's real easy to do. That I've always been told that X is true. So I'm going to make the Bible fit X. So nobody told me that what I want, the Bible doesn't specifically say what I want is precluded and is, and is wrong. Therefore, I don't have to look any further. 
And that's not true. You have to dig to find the goal. And then you have to be able to take what Scripture says and apply that to your life, leaving your own prejudices and preconceived notions behind. This means that a, a, that a deep study is required. And the answer is what the answer is, whether you like it or not, whether you agree or not. The Bible says what the Bible says. Amen? So what did my study reveal? You know, I'm looking at, I'm coming at this from a, you know, a point of view that I had not actually ever considered. So I'm looking at this from a different point of view. So I go into this study with an open mind. Now, in full transparency, I'm licensed to carry, and I do. I'm a member of the NRA. But I've set my preferences and my preconceived notions aside. And hopefully, prayerfully, I'm taking you where Scripture has taken me. I'm looking for the principles in God's Word regarding this, this topic and how I should apply them to my life. So let's take a look at where, the, where I've been led. Again, the question is not really, is it okay to carry a concealed deadly weapon? The question is, is it godly to use it? Just like the concealed carry training that I took, a lot of, us, a lot of time has been spent on when and where a person can carry, and almost none was spent on why. The crux of the matter is not the gun, but the use of it. So what does God say about self-defense or the use of deadly force under any circumstances? In Exodus 20:13, one of the most quoted verses in Scripture, it says, Do not murder. How many of us have heard that misquoted? Thou shalt not kill. We've all heard that. But that's a misquote. That's incorrect. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, Thou shalt not murder. So what's the difference between killing and murder? Well, scripturally, the difference between killing and murder is murder is involved in the taking of innocent life and shedding innocent blood. Where killing, in the Old Testament especially, is often prescribed by God. Remember what happened after the wanderings in the desert and they came back to the Holy Land? Joshua, Caleb, those guys... They're ready to cross over and take their inheritance. What did God tell them to do? God said, go in there and kill everything that moves. Men, women, children, goats, chickens, kill it. All of it. Everything dies. What did the people of Israel do? They went in, they they fought their battles. They took the cities. They captured the, the ground. They married some of the women. They kept some of the sheep. And God judged them for it. Now, I'm not saying that we should just go out and, just, and, and perform genocide, just go out and walk, wipe out whole races of people. That's not what I'm proposing. What I'm saying is God specifically mandated killing in certain appropriate circumstances. So there's a difference between murder and killing. In some cases, it's mandated by God. And the Mosaic law is replete with killing. God honored. The penalty for many serious crimes in in Mosaic law was what? Death. Adultery. Stone. Okay, all you teenagers, if your teenager was unruly, you were taking the edge of the camp and stoning them. 
I'm glad we don't do that anymore. There wouldn't be any church. They would all be dead. All right? So God laid down that principle, that killing at times is appropriate. I've got a quote here from a, guy, from a pastor named David French. And he said, Among God's first words to Noah after the flood subsided was the declaration of the importance of human life and the principle or the price paid for spilling human blood. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is a statement not made to a nation state or to a police force, but instead to a small band of people who are rebuilding human society from the ground up. The principle is clear. Human life is precious, and God mandates that the ultimate penalty for taking of life. But what about war? Now, we, we could do a whole, whole session on just war and whether there's a right to kill in combat. I don't want to get into it that deeply, but there's a lot that Scripture says about that. Who is the man after God's own heart? Anybody know? Man of God on heart. David. What is David best known for? Killing Goliath. You know, David went to the stream when he faced Goliath, and he took out five smooth stones from the stream. How many stones did it take to kill the giant? So I guess Goliath had four brothers. I'm not sure. Anyway. So David is best known as a warrior. He was the ultimate warrior and God, the man after God's own heart. He fought many, many battles under the leadership of God himself. So David was a warrior. He wasn't judged by God for the taking of life. He was judged by God by this appropriate taking of life. But that's another story. So what about war? Is it wrong to kill in battle? Well, many of us are military or have been. We've had to deal with that topic. Some of us have had to actually make that decision. Many of us, most of us, hopefully never have and never will. But we have to be prepared to take life. Part of our military duty. So I think God honors that. David was a warrior. What about law enforcement? It's in the news every day about police-related shootings. So what about law enforcement? Is it... Is it Justifiable to take a life to protect the law and society depends on the situation. Depends on the motivation. Depends on the rules of engagement. I did a lot of law enforcement in the Coast Guard, and I was trained over and over and over again about when it was appropriate to draw my weapon and when it wasn't. I was trained when it was appropriate to take a human life and apply deadly force. I was given the authority to do that if it was necessary. And thank God it, never was, it was never necessary in my career. But it came to the point on more than one occasion, the only difference between life and death was a couple, a couple of thousandths of an inch of trigger pull. That I had to make a decision on the spot right now whether I should pull that trigger or not. Because in those situations, as in the concealed carry situations, you don't have time to think about it. You don't have time to, to go back to the book saying, okay, well, does this situation apply? You've got to act. You've got to act now. 
And I'm woefully, I'm concerned, and we'll talk about this more, but I'm concerned in our concealed carry culture that we're not adequately trained to make that decision. We're trained on when we can carry, but not how. We're trained on, we're not adequately trained on when to pull that trigger. So, in a law enforcement situation, is it, is it God-honoring? Sometimes it is. It has to be appropriate. You'll be held accountable, and you should be held accountable if it's not. What about the protection of our own homes? What about if you're sound asleep and someone breaks into your house? Do you have the right to, to take a life? What does Scripture say about that? In Exodus 22, 2, it says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no gut, blood guilt for him. And it goes on to explain that if a thief is breaking in at night, there's no blood guilt. You're not held accountable for the death. But if they're breaking in during the day and you kill them, you are held accountable. Isn't that interesting? What's the difference? The situation is, is different. If it's in the panic of the moment, you're sound asleep and you wake up with someone in your house and you react, you're not held accountable, according to Exodus 22. But in the daytime, if you're wide awake and somebody breaks into your house, you're expected to escape or find some other method of de-escalating the situation than taking a life. So even God in Scripture is putting conditions on it, conditionality on, when, on, on the taking of life. So it says that there was blood guilt if the thief was killed during the day, but not at night. Note the, the grace that God gives to the citizen in the midst of the fear and ambiguity of a nighttime invasion. Even a thief, not a rapist or a murderer, should not be killed if there's a way around it, if there's a way that you can avoid it. What about the protection of our families? Is it legitimate to take a life if our families are threatened? What if somebody grabs your kid at the mall and takes off with them? Is it appropriate to draw your concealed weapon and use it in that situation? So what does Scripture say about it? Well, let's, let's start with a little history lesson. Remember Nehemiah? He was in exile from Israel. And he just had a burning in his heart to come back to, to Judea and rebuild Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. The walls had been destroyed. The gates were burned up. The city was wide open. It was full of jackals, as Scripture says. The people around Jerusalem were mocking those, the remainder of the people that still were in Jerusalem because they were defenseless. And they are completely at their mercy. So Nehemiah was led by God to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. He was given that mandate. So he did. And that's, that's a very long story and it's a very, very good study. About, if you get a chance to really do a study on Nehemiah, I really encourage you to do it. Great book on leadership. But he went back to Jerusalem and he started rebuilding the walls, but his neighbors didn't like that. They were threatened by the fact that they were protecting themselves, that they were build, rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. So Samballat and his friends got together, and they decided they'd do everything they could to discourage the building of the wall. Tried to lure Nehemiah into a trap on a couple of occasions, and he was too wise to get involved in those things. So they started rebuilding the walls, and his neighbors got more and more aggressive. So it got to the point where the, the building came to a halt. The people were discouraged. 
The walls weren't going up because they were afraid. And Nehemiah said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah says, don't be afraid. Stand up and fight. Now, each family after this was given a section of wall to build. It was their responsibility to build that section in front of their homes. So each family was responsible for building their part of the wall. And Nehemiah told the men to work with one hand with one hand and hold a spear in the other to defend themselves in case of attack by their neighbors. And then the book of Esther describes God's intervention in a chain of events that would have eliminated the people of God. You see, the king had been, had been basically tricked and led astray by his counselors to the point that he had issued a decree that all the Jews were to be killed. And then Esther stood up, who was the queen, the king's favorite, and revealed the fact that she herself was a Jew. And that if the Jews were going to be killed, she too would be killed along with the rest of them. Now, in that society, the law was that if the king passed a decree, he could not rescind it because the king can never be wrong. So he passed a decree that the Jews should be killed. He couldn't say, no, 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 stop. Let's, let's not kill the Jews. He had to let it go through. He had to let these events play themselves out. But what he did do is issue a second decree, warning all the Jews that the army was coming to kill them and giving them the authority to defend themselves. And they did. And they survived. God moved those events to the point where the Jews were given the ability and the, and the God's leading to defend themselves and to use deadly force. So where does that, what principle do we glean from that? Do we have the right to defend ourselves and our property? Do we have the right to defend our families? Okay, I think... We've heard quite a bit of the Old Testament stuff. The Old Testament was a little bit different. Because we're now under a new covenant, aren't we? Then we were under an old covenant with God. Now we're under a completely new covenant. So we need to ask this question again with a different focus. Different glasses on. Different viewpoint. We have to ask this question again. What would Jesus do? And what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about defending yourself and Jesus? The scene in the garden where Jesus is being taken. Peter draws out his sword and chops off the high priest's servant's ear. And Christ says, put that away. We'll talk about that in a minute. So what would Jesus do? What should we do as Christians under the new, under the new covenant? When we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for them. Turn the other cheek. In Luke 22, verses 34 through 38, it says, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out without a purse, a bag, or sandals, did you lack for anything? Nothing, they answered. Then he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. If you have a bag, 
and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Why would he tell them that? Well, he knew the persecution was coming. And he knew the price that all of the apostles except John and many of his disciples would pay for their belief in him. So he told them to go sell their cloak and buy a sword. He goes on to say, it's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. In verse 38, the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. But what about Peter and his sword? In Luke 22, it says, While he was speaking, a crowd came up to him, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you portraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, and we know from John 18, this is Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. When Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who came for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, but you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. The use of force here was inappropriate because it would have stood in the way of God's plan. It was the plan for Jesus to be taken. It was the plan for Jesus to be tried and crucified and buried so that he could rise from the dead. That was the plan. So God, in this instance, forbade the use of force. It wasn't appropriate here. So the principle is that I think we can see is the use of force is not is sometimes God-honoring, but not always prescribed, not always appropriate. So where do we stand? Well, I think it's clear that God allows us to defend ourselves. From that, I can conclude... You need to conclude for yourself. But I can conclude that concealed carry is not an offense to God. Is that the answer to the question, what does the Bible say about it? I think so. But the question remains, is the use of deadly force justified? It can be. Is the use of deadly force the best solution? Rarely. I fear that we are rushing to the ultimate solution too quickly. I think instead of concealed carry, we ought to be concealed pepper spray first. My training was very clear on the use of deadly force. It was laid out and prescribed when it was appropriate when it wasn't. But it was always for one purpose. Now, I wasn't in combat. That's a different story. The use of deadly force in combat has a different goal, a different meaning, a different mission. The use of deadly force in law enforcement... I was tasked as a law enforcement officer of the federal government to, to um, compel compliance with the least force necessary. So just my presence and my voice, if I could compel compliance, that's what I should do. If that wasn't sufficient, then I could go to the baton. If that wasn't sufficient, I could go to, I could go to uh, pepper spray. If that wasn't sufficient, 
then I would have to go to the weapon. Minimum force necessary to compel compliance. That's what it was all about. If I jumped to the pistol first, I am liable. I could be charged with murder. It had to be appropriate. It had to fit the situation. So let's think about concealed carry. Why are we doing this and what is it? Well, the goals of concealed carry are these. Number one is deterrence. The bad guys might think twice about attempting to harm someone if they may be armed. Right? Deterrence. This has proven to be very effective. Violent crime rates have dropped dramatically in concealed carry states because it's no longer, you are no longer an easy target. Before, before someone sets out to mug you and take your wallet or your purse, they're going to ask themselves, hey, is this person armed? Makes them think twice before they take that risk. So deterrence. Concealed carry is very good at that. Protection. Number two. The threat of a drawn weapon is often effective in resolving the situation without a shot ever being fired. Many, many times you'll read about the situation that de-escalated because there's someone was known to be carrying a weapon. And thirdly is the application of deadly force. But let's talk about that for a minute. The intent of concealed carry is not, repeat, is not to kill someone. Every effort must be made to de-escalate the situation by any means other than that. Only as a last resort should a weapon be used. And I want to stress something there. Do not, hear me, do not carry a weapon if you are not prepared to use it. Do not. So answer the question yourself in your own heart, in your own mind. Am I willing to use this weapon before you strap it on? Because you're more dangerous to society with a weapon that you will not use than you are with a weapon that you, that you use appropriately. That makes sense? So don't play with this. If you are not certain in your heart and your mind that you could use that weapon, leave it at home. You must de-escalate the situation. Do not carry if you're not prepared to use it. There can be no half measures. If you draw a weapon, you have to be able to apply deadly force. My training was very clear on that. That weapon stayed in the holster unless I thought that there was a chance that it would be used. I had to apply every other method before I resorted to the pistol. I went to very strenuous training on called fist simulators, shoot-don't-shoot simulators. Now, it's not real. It's a simulator. It's a simulator. It's a simulation. You go into this knowing that it's not real, that you're not going to die, that no, nobody's going to die here today. By the time you're done with that simulator, you don't know that for sure. They're very, very realistic. Your blood pressure and your heart rate goes up to about a million while you're going through this. And the whole idea behind this simulator is to stage these, stage these events where you have to make a life or death decision in an instant and then judge your reaction to them. So as an example, I'm going into a warehouse or being called to a break-in. I'm going into a warehouse. I've got my pistol drawn, and I'm going in. Now, it is a simulation, but still, I'm going in. 
and I'm checking dark corners and I'm looking and I'm searching and I'm, you know, I'm on alert. Somebody comes out of a room to my right and I turn and I put my pistol on them and they reach in their jacket and they grab their microphone. <laughs> and I know right away they're Baptist preachers and I shoot them. No. He reaches into his jacket. Do I shoot him or not? I have to make that judgment call. So you're, I'm got, I'm tack up the slack out of the trigger, and I'm going shoot, 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 shoot. Don't, don't shoot. Last minute, I, I backed off and released the pressure. He pulls out a badge. He was a security guard. It came to that decision on whether I shot that guy or not. Now that was a simulator. It scared the, the Jesus out of me. Because I was a fraction of an inch away from dropping a hammer on him. Well, that was a simulator. But then it happened in real life. It happened on a boarding. And a guy drew a shotgun on me. Shoot him or not. I had every legal justification to shoot this guy. But I didn't. I was taking my own life in my hands at that point. Because this... There's a person swinging a shotgun around my direction. Do I shoot him or not? If I wait, he could kill me. So I wait. He brings that shotgun around. Well, as he's swinging it around, he's saying, oh, I forgot I had this. It was empty. I had no way of knowing that. All I saw was that barrel swinging my direction. And I had this every, every bit of slack out of that trigger. That 45 was ready to go. And there was my boarding, the assistant boarding officer was standing right behind me, and his 45 was ready to go. It was a life or death decision I had to make that quick. And that's what concealed carry means, ladies and gentlemen. You may be in the position to make a life or death decision like that. You need to be prepared for that. You need to be trained for that. No half measures. And remember that the shooting is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. All the pain, all the remorse, all the sleepless nights, all the nightmares, all the lawsuits are going to follow. I'm not saying all this to scare you. And I'm not saying all this to, to say that you shouldn't conceal carry. I just want you to understand what we're talking about here. You need to fully understand the, the magnitude of this decision. The ACLU has a team of lawyers standing by waiting to file wrongful death lawsuits against anyone who pulls a trigger, whether it's, whether it's justified or not. Are you prepared to spend millions of dollars to defend yourself in court? Just, just saying. So what is our conclusion? I think scriptures are clear on the use of force to protect the innocent. I then don't feel that concealed carry is wrong or immoral. Is it okay for a Christian to carry? My opinion is yes, if they feel it's necessary. Carrying a deadly weapon implies that you are prepared to use it. If not, don't carry. Concealed carry is an awesome responsibility. Do not take it lightly. Examine your own heart and come up with your own conclusions based on your study of the Word of God. And being led by the principles contained in scripture. And before all of this, and through all of this, pray about it. God may have something to say to you about this. Let's pray. 
Lord, we, we thank you so much for the scripture that you've given us and the guide that it has, that it, the, the lighthouse that it is. We thank you so much for your ability to express your principles through the word and make them acceptable to us so that we can see your heart and your mind on matters that aren't clear. And these things are not only cluttered in our own minds, but they're cluttered in society and we're led and pulled so many different ways. Lord, give us the ability to ignore all of that and concentrate on you and what you would have us do. Lord, I ask that you protect this congregation, that you protect this church so that this situation never arises in any of our lives. Lord, we pray that in this fallen world that is so violent and so far away from you, that none of us ever have to face the responsibility and make the decision on whether to use a weapon or not. Lord, we ask that you protect us from it, that you build a wall around us and protect us from those who would harm us. Lord, we, we depend on you most of all for our protection. So, Lord, convict us what is right. Work in the hearts of all that have heard this and lead them to the place that you would have them be. Just let us know and let you know that we love you and we praise you. And in the end, our lives are all about you and honoring and serving you. So, Lord, be with us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining us for this lesson from the Word of God. We know that the truth you have just heard will change your life if you believe it and intentionally apply it. If you need someone to pray with or maybe you just want someone to talk to, please call us at 618-622-9360 or you can email us at victoryfwb at gmail.com. If you're interested in obtaining more teaching materials or if you'd like to partner with us in this ministry, please contact us. You can email, call, or send a request to 223 Scott Troy Road, O'Fallon, Illinois, 62269. And again, we thank you and are glad you could join us.